you a message tonight. I'd like to teach you tonight the difference between faith and feelings and how our faith had better guide and rule our feelings. I'm a man of feelings. All those of you who know me know that. So I'm not speaking about something that I'm ignorant about. I can get as high as anyone in here or higher. And I can get as low as anyone in here or lower from feelings. But I want to see what the Word of God has to say about it tonight and see if it doesn't help us in keeping what I preached this morning because that's Amen. the purpose for why I want to preach that we might serve the Lord Jesus Christ better and not let our feelings distract us or lead us away from pursuing Him fully by faith and letting Him give us our feelings as we obey Him. In Hebrews chapter 11, we are told the basis for our religion. And that is in verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. We base our lives and our religion on faith. It's the foundation for us. We, the Christian life is one of faith. And so let's establish first that fact. The Christian life is one of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. So if we're going to be followers of God, we must be men and women of faith. And faith is here defined for us. We believe that God is, and we believe that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now, faith is so strong in believing the words and promises of God that it gives us confidence and evidence that God is true. Amen. Verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We have a bumper sticker on one of the bumpers in our assembly, which I like to quote because it so simply states, Faith. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. God said it, I believe it, I have the evidence for it. Even though you may not be able to see it. Do you all have the evidence that God created everything out of nothing? By faith, we have it. It's the substance of things hoped for. Did Abraham have the substance of things hoped for? He saw heaven, because he sought a city which hath foundations, and he had the substance of that by his faith. And that's how we live. We believe what God said. Faith is not nebulous. Faith isn't some abstract concept. Faith is, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. The elders, according to verse 2 of this chapter, obtained a good report by faith. For by it the elders obtained a good report. And if you were to read the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, you have those elders described one by one, and how they did things by faith. Building an ark in your backyard is something you would do by faith because you wouldn't be able to see enough water to float the thing. But Noah did it. Abraham left his home country and went into a country that he was told he would sometime receive for an inheritance and he went not knowing whither he went. But God had said, leave your country. So what did Abraham do? If God says leave, what does a man of faith do? He leaves. But what if he doesn't know where he's going? He leaves anyway. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. God's going to take care of me. Somewhere I'll get to my... And sometime I'll get to my destination. I may not see all the future, but what God has told me, I'm going to do. You know, Hebrews 11, I've, I've combed it electronically and visually. But I can't find anything in it about feelings except that Moses turned his back on them in order to live by faith. That's all I could find in Hebrews 11. So in the great chapter of faith, the only place I could find reference to feelings was Moses turning his back on them and ignoring them, rejecting them, and trading them in for faith in God. But I want you to come over to Romans chapter 4 and see again 
the faith of Abraham. Someday, you'll all know this by heart, at the rate I'm going, and I won't have to turn to it very often, but to me, it's the best definition of faith we have in the Bible, outside of Hebrews 11, but here we have a very specific man, in a very specific situation, and how he worked his faith, how his faith worked in the man of Abraham. God had told him in verses 16 and 17, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Did he say that? Amen. No, he said, I have made thee a father of many nations. I was, I was playing with you. I have made thee a father of many nations. When as yet he didn't even have a son. And when he was too old to have children, and his wife was too old to have children. Verse 18 says, Who against hope believed in hope, there's faith, that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he wasn't weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. A weak man with weak faith would have considered his body. But Abraham did not. Abraham ignored the fact that he was reproductively dead and couldn't father a child. And the verse goes on to say when he was about a hundred years old. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Neither yet what? He didn't consider it. He wasn't weak in faith. Weak people in faith see all the problems. Men who are strong in faith don't see any problems. If God said it, then it's going to work out great. And they do it. He considered not his body, nor yet Sarah's dead womb. He believed, he, he believed that God would be able to keep his promise. Because he says in verse, it says in verse 20, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Now, brother, when you have a dead man and you have a dead woman and you're thinking about a child coming from the two of them, how can you be per fully persuaded that it's going to happen? I don't mean hopeful. I mean fully persuaded. Isn't that what it says? Fully persuaded. Faith. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. God said, I have made thee a father of many nations. Abraham didn't consider all the problems. He just believed it. And you know what he had to do? He took Sarah to bed. And they had a son named Isaac. He was fully persuaded that God was able to do that. And he never staggered. He didn't even stagger. And he didn't question it. And this applies to so many issues we face as Christians. Whether it's creation, or inspiration, or canonicity, or preservation, it's a matter of faith. How do we know how, how we got our 66 books? You fully persuaded? You got the substance of it? Where's the epistle to the Laodiceans? Where it belongs? We don't know where it is, but it's where it belongs because God's given us His Word and we believe it by faith. The Christian life is one of faith. Here's how God's men operated. And because Abraham act, behaved that way and trusted God that much, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. It was a sign that he was a righteous man. It says he gave glory to God by believing that way. You give glory to God when you believe his promises. Don't you love it when your children believe you when you promise them something or tell them something? Or your wife does? When someone puts their trust and confidence in you? Well, Abraham gave glory to God by believing his promises. God gives us faith in regeneration. We have the principle of faith within us. We're able to believe. But it's by the preaching of God's Word that gives us promises and statements from God that we get to exercise that faith by laying hold of those promises. And that's actually what it's called in Hebrews chapter 6. If you've got the principle of faith but you never hear the preaching of the Gospel, what's your faith going to lay hold of? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It's by preaching the promises of God, the fulfilled work of God that we heard about tonight in salvation in a testimony. It's these statements of Scripture that that principle of faith that's in us, that God gave us, is able to reach out and grab, I believe that. 
I am fully persuaded that there is a heaven after this life and that Jesus Christ paid for all of my sins and there isn't a chance that I can be lost. I am perfected forever and sanctified and all sins past, present and future have been paid for and I'm going to be presented holy, blameless and without spot with exceeding great joy before His presence. How do we know all that? Because God gave us faith to believe it and then He gave us the promise to lay hold of. And that's how a Christian lives. You know, when we get the feelings of joy, when we lay hold of one of those promises by faith, here's a man who's been, who has the principle of faith within him, like a Cornelius. He's praying to God always. He's giving alms to the people. He's under condemnation for his sin. He feels guilty. He knows there's a holy God in heaven because of his eternal power and Godhead revealed by the creation and because he knows God in his heart. But he has not yet heard the glorious message that Jesus Christ has delivered from sin. Along comes the Apostle Peter preaches to the household of Cornelius that this Jesus Christ was given power by, the, by God Almighty who went about doing good, healing all those that were oppressed of the devil and healing the sick. And he was ordained by God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. And he's put away all sin. And he's commanded all men to repent and believe the gospel. Cornelius believed that gospel. The Holy Spirit fell on him. He was baptized. And what fruit of the Spirit do you think was in the household of Cornelius? Joy. Because his faith had reached out and grabbed a hold of a promise. He exercised his faith. He believed and he obeyed. And joy followed. The jailer. It doesn't matter who you pick. I will show you that order. I don't care who it is in the Word of God, including the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, obedience, joy. Faith, obedience, and the feelings, the pleasure of obeying God and believing in God comes following faith and obedience. The jailer. How much joy did he have when he sprang in? Where was his sword? In its sheath or in his right hand? In his right hand. He was about to fall on it. Would you say his joy was high or low? I'm, no, let's. We got to think about the jailer. The jailer had a tra- despair. He was in total despair, fear, and ready to commit Harry Carey suicide. Paul told him, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house." And he believed with all his house and was baptized straightway the same hour. And what does the Bible tell us about him? He rejoiced with all his house. He reached out with that faith that God put there. He grabbed a hold of that promise that in Jesus Christ there was salvation. He exercised that faith enough to get down into some tank of water he had there in the prison. What time of night was it, do you think? 2 a.m. 2 a.m. they found enough water for the Apostle Paul to stuff him down under it so that it looked like a burial, and we don't know what it was, and get him back up and his family, and by believing and obeying, he was filled with joy, and it says he was rejoicing as he bustled around washing the wounds and feeding them a meal, Paul and Silas. The Ethiopian eunuch, what was he feeling like coming back from Jerusalem? Confused. What had he seen in Jerusalem? Sacrifices being offered. He hadn't heard a whole lot of gospel preaching or he wouldn't have been asking about Isaiah 53. And so Philip shows shows him the gospel. He believes as soon as he sees water, he's made a few connections in his mind and he says, what hinders me from being baptized? They stop. They go down into the water. Philip baptizes him. Philip disappears. And what does it say about the eunuch? He went on his way rejoicing. Is rejoicing a good feeling? You bet it is. It's the joy of the Holy Ghost. What happens when you have the joy of the Holy Ghost? What bodily movements occur? What do you want to do? Dance. What did John the Baptist do in his mother's womb when he met Jesus Christ? He leaped for joy. What did David do in front of the Ark of the Covenant when God blessed him in his faith and obedience? He danced with all of his might. But it's in that order. If we sit around waiting for some feeling to come on us, or use some natural means, like tones from an electric guitar, that is not the same thing. We want to to believe, we want to obey, and then God will bless. 
with that joy. How good did Abraham feel going up Mount Moriah with Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice? I'd say he felt better after he turned around and saw a ram in a thicket. Wouldn't you, don't you think? I think he felt a whole lot better. I think he was singing lots of songs about the Lamb of God and God's blessing and praise to the Lord the Almighty for having provided a lamb or a ram instead of his son Isaac. What about the Israelites? They stood on one side of the Red Sea. What were their feelings? Terror and despair. What were their feelings like on the other side of the Red Sea? What did they do? Danced. They sang and danced. What made the difference? I'm going to tell you what made the difference. Moses said, go across. There's dry ground, and there's water on the left side, and there's water on the right side. It is stacked so high, and Moses says, go across. And they walked out in there. I have goosebumps on my neck telling you about it. What were the natural considerations? Here's the natural consideration for all you scientists. Water tends to seek level, doesn't it? Does water tend to seek level? What does that mean if you're walking down on the bed of the Red Sea and it's stacked up like apartment buildings on both sides of you? You're going to drown. They went through by faith and obeyed. And when they got to the other side, the Lord gave them the joy. There's a whole chapter in the Bible. It's Exodus chapter 15. Miriam pulled out their timbrels and they danced. Now see, then you can make some noise. They did in the Old Testament, but you started by faith. They didn't have, when they first got, when they first got to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies are closing on them, were they believers? No. But then Moses told them what their option was. To put their trust in the Lord. And the Lord gave them a little encouragement, didn't he? Would a pillar of fire dropping out of heaven in the middle of the night give you some encouragement? Yes. And they went across. Isn't, that, isn't the Lord good? Amen. He should have crushed them right there. They just had ten plagues in Egypt. But no, he was merciful to them and gave them a token for good. And they went across. And as they believed and obeyed, then look at the joy they had on the other side. The, the hated enemy of the pharaohs the hated Egyptians that had punished them and their ancestors for several generations in building their pyramids were floating up onto the shore. And Miriam, a sweet woman, takes up a song about dead, waterlogged Egyptian bodies. You can read about it in Exodus 15. That's the blessing of God. But notice what came first, faith, then obedience, and then the feelings. Did Paul feel good about his thorn in the flesh? Did it buffet him? Did he call it a trial and a tribulation and an affliction? Did he pray for God to take it away? Did God tell him to be content with it? Did he believe him? Did he obey and go on and live the rest of his life without any anger toward the Lord? Was he a pretty joyful man? Yes, he was. Because he believed God even in the face of adversity, affliction and pain, the Apostle Paul practiced faith obedience, and then the Lord took care of them. I read in Acts chapter 5 that the council finally were fed up with the apostles and so they beat them. The first time they warned them, don't you dare preach in that name. And an hour later, what were they doing? Preaching in that name. Why were they preaching in that name? Because God said it, so they believed it, and that settles it. we got to go preach anyway. Faith was operating. After they were beat, was, did the beating feel good? But what happened? On their way away from that beating, what does the Bible describe their situation as? They were rejoicing that they had been privileged to suffer shame for His name. Who's able to give rejoicing in your heart in the middle of a beating? That was a, that was a severe beating. And they rejoiced because they obeyed God and God gave them joy. That joy was not generated by some foolish humanistic effort to pump, to work themselves up from the inside. Brother, when you've got 39 stripes on your back and it wasn't gently done, you don't work very much up from the inside except a whole lot of rage or a whole lot of feeling sorry for yourself. But they were rejoicing because God gave them that because they believed and they obeyed and the feelings came. 
The Christian life is one of faith. I want to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was on his knees praying to his father, did he feel good? Did he beg? Did he plead for his father to give him another option? Did he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood? Does the Bible say he was in a deep agony? Did he believe? Did he obey? Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Do you know what Hebrews 12, 2 tells me? For the joy that was set before him, he did what? He endured and he despised the shame. Despised it? Do you mean someone could go through the sufferings of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and actually despise it? This is pitiful what you're doing. In the perspective of that joy that was set before him. How did he get that? By God the Holy Ghost. Blessing him. Because he had the spirit without measure. The man Christ Jesus. He believed. He obeyed. He humbled himself and submitted himself to God. And the Lord gave him great joy that was before him so that he could despise the sufferings of the cross of Calvary. Brethren, let me ask you this. This is why we live, the Christian life is one of faith. And I said it this morning. But this is really where it gets down to us living godly lives or not. It's being spiritually minded or carnally minded. Do you pray when you feel like it? Or do you pray because you should? This is what I'm preaching for tonight. When do you pray? Don't you dare wait until you feel like praying. You pray because you know God's told you to pray. It's a commandment. And in the praying, the Lord will give you the feelings. The Lord will give you the joy of praying. But you pray first. If you pray by faith, feelings will come. Don't you wait for feelings to lead you to pray. And I'm using that example because it applies to everything. What about reading the Bible? If you wait until you feel like reading the Bible, you won't read it very often. You should esteem it more necessary than your daily food and choose to read it. I'm going to rush home from work and get alone and read my Bible. I want to get up early and read my Bible. You say, well, sometimes, some mornings I just don't feel it. I've heard that too much. And you know what? I've heard it here and I've heard it here. That's why I'm preaching to you. I don't feel like reading it right now. Read it anyway. And if you'll read it with a sincere heart and humble yourself before the Lord and confess the fact that you don't feel like reading it, He'll give you joy in reading. He will. True faith is contrary to feelings of the sort I'm describing. For you have nothing good inside you. If you're looking for something inside you to drive you to do what God has said, it is not going to happen. For one reason, you have nothing good inside you, and two, God would never let it happen that way, because then you'd be obeying Him out of something driving you inside instead of mere faith. He wants you to believe and obey by faith. He wants you to walk down to that Red Sea by faith. He wants you to pray by faith. He knows that if you get down on your knees and seek Him with an honest and sincere heart when you don't feel like it, that's a better prayer than when you feel like it. He gives you that joy where you just want to pray. You want to sing. But when you choose to sing because He's asked you to sing, that is glorifying to God. And that's what we need to do. The Christian life is one of faith. The modern life is one of feelings. Our society is obsessed with feelings. Feelings are created by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's what makes everyone feel so good about their shiny house, their shiny car, their new clothes, their promotion, their job, their money. Anything they're able to do for themselves and for their own glory and honor, it makes them feel good. It's the lust of what you can see. It's the lust of the flesh, what you can taste and feel and hear and smell. And it's the pride of life that makes men feel good. That's all that is in the world. And so their feelings are lust-driven. 
And we have a society that is obsessed with the sensual, touch, taste, sound, sight, and smell, the source of our feelings. You know, the Bible describes men that are sensual, they're in Jude. They're going to burn in hell. They're sensual. That means they operate by the senses. Now, God gave us our senses to enjoy, but we enjoy them under faith. We obey first and enjoy after that. We don't look for our senses to drive our faith. Look at Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. Feelings. The modern life is one of feelings. Well, I don't feel like doing it, so they don't. Well, I want that, so they get it. Johnny, you can't have that right now. But I want it. Johnny, you can't have it right now. But I want it. A feeling-driven society. Then Johnny grows up to be a man, and he wants something. He doesn't have the money for it, so he pulls out his credit card, gets himself in debt, and in deep trouble. Because Johnny has never learned that feelings shouldn't be driving him, but faith. Does, does faith apply to things like not using your credit card when you shouldn't? Absolutely. God's Word addresses subjects like that in the book of Proverbs primarily. Proverbs 9.17, A strange woman will convince a man that stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Are those good feelings? The whole world lives off those feelings. The movie industry lives off those feelings. The feelings of fornication, the pleasures of sin for a season, which I've preached on before. Short-term feelings. It's true. Proverbs 9.17 is true. But they're short-term and they don't lead to righteousness. God wants us to obey and put down that woman, ignore her, reject her, turn away from her, depart from her, and flee her. Amnon didn't. Did Amnon have some strong feelings? Was it, were his feelings so strong that it vexed him and made him sick? Were his feelings sincere? Were they real? They were real to him. Did they have any lasting value? As soon as he realized them, they were gone. And hatred replaced what he had called love before. And it wasn't love. Though the Bible says that it was love, it was lust. It was love in Amnon's sense of love. The Epicureans were a religion. They're really Americans today. The Epicureans just thought that all of life was for one purpose. Pleasure. Feelings. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Just get as much pleasure out of today as you possibly can in any way that you want to. And that's fine because life is short and therefore live it with all the gusto you can and find all the pleasure and feelings that you can. And that's our society today. But do you know what? You don't have to be taught to be an Epicurean because you've got it inside you. You only want to do what feels good. Your nature is driving you always to satisfy your lusts and your own feelings. You are always being driven to make the choices that feel good. Devotions at night for you fathers doesn't feel good. But do you know, once you set aside the time, sit down, do it sincerely before the Lord, and put yourself into it at the end, how do you feel? You know you've obeyed the Lord and there's a blessing of joy in it. But the blessing of joy is in the doing. If you're involved in something and you look at the watch or your wife comes in and reminds you it's about time for the kids to go to bed, there's not a whole lot of feeling for it. But you do it by faith. But our society is feeling driven. Well, I don't feel like it. What feelings do you have in the morning when it's time to get up? Faith says a godly man's going to be at the place of employment at, such an, at 8 o'clock. Sorry. Jim's always convicting me, or anyone else that goes to work that late. Eight o'clock. But what, when you're laying in bed, what feelings do you have? Another five? Another ten? Who wants to hit the deck? Who has feelings that you want to hit the deck? You make that choice by faith in the morning. There's a commandment somewhere that you're trying to obey. And so you jump out and you hit the deck, even though you don't want to. 
Those feelings don't help you. They're a temptation away from doing what's right. But our society is obsessed with them. Whatever feels good, do it. You don't feel like working today, then slough off. Pace yourself, it's called. Ever heard that one? Pace yourself. I don't feel like working hard today. I don't feel like doing this with the wife. I don't feel like being nice to him. I don't feel like doing that for them. I don't feel like going to church this morning. I didn't feel like praying last night. I didn't feel like getting baptized yet. On and on it goes, the list of feelings. None of it matters to God. You're being driven by the wrong thing. And we should learn to hate those feelings and focus on faith. And let God give us feelings given by the Spirit. Bowels do exist in the Bible. The Bible uses the word bowels. The word feelings is not found in your King James Bible. The word feeling is found twice, and it's not in the context that you want to refer to it if, you want, if you're trying to defend feelings. But the Bible does use bowels. Solomon knew about the bowels of a woman toward her child, didn't he? Remember when he had those two harlots in front of him with one living baby? The wise man knew that there were bowels in a woman that were so strong they'd overrule her mind. And he said, cut the child in half. And the true mother of that child, it's the Bible tells us, her bowels overruled her mind. You know what she thought of that other woman trying to take her child, don't you? Give the other woman the child. And that was bowels-driven. The Lord has put some of those natural instincts in women and in men, children, fathers, and, mo and mothers for their children. But do you know what the Bible tells us about those bowels? We can put them on right. and we can put them off. That relationship of parents to children and children to parents, do you know what Jesus Christ said? When it comes to me, you better be able to step on those bowels and overrule them by faith. Do you, are, do you, are you following me? That same, those same bowels that King Solomon in his wisdom understood would be inside that woman. He, he was going to find out which woman it was very quickly and very certainly. Those bowels, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, are to be ignored and rejected. Isn't that why Jesus Christ repeats several times that if you're not willing to forsake mother and father and son and daughter for my sake, you are not worthy to be my disciple Jesus Christ has reached down into our beings, our psyche, as the world would say, and said, I know your bowels. Are you willing to override your bowels by faith to obey me? What a test. And you know what? Many people can't pass it. Remember the man that came to join Jesus? And he said he has to go say goodbye. And Jesus said, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Had to go say goodbye to his family. The context was such that it was more than, a, more than the goodbye that you're thinking of if you, don't, if you think that's too harsh. Did you know that in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, we're told to put on bowels? Bowels of kindness, bowels of mercy. In 1 John 3, 17, it warns us about ever hardening up our bowels toward a brother. Because you can do that in selfish pride. A brother needs something and you say, be warmed and filled, but you harden up your own bowels from reaching into your pocket, pulling out your wallet, and taking care of his need. So the Bible says that our bowels are under our control. Have you followed the illustrations I've just given you from the Bible? Jesus expects you to be able to reject them, and you're told to put them on, and when sometimes you might want to harden them up to protect yourself and not lose any money, the Lord tells you, to take away that hardening and give. Your bowels are to be controlled by faith. Even the ones that Solomon knew were so powerful that that woman would reveal herself as the true mother of, those, of that child. In two ways, feelings defeat godliness. Have you ever spoken to someone and shown them the truth from God's Word? They say they're a Bible believer. You sit down, you open it up, you let them read a verse, and you say, see? And they say, I just don't feel that that's right. Have you ever heard that? That is so pitiful. I just don't feel that's right. We're dealing with some doctrinal issue. I just don't feel that's right. 
Then you deal with someone, you tell them what they ought to do, and they say, I just don't feel like doing it. So even when a doctrinal matter or a practical matter, an issue of God's promises and God's statement about Himself, or a commandment from God's Word of something we should do, men respond by saying, I don't feel like doing it. That is when feelings are getting in the way of faith and godliness. Faith overrides those. But you're going to run into people like that. The modern world, our society, is is feelings-driven. When an athlete hires himself a personal trainer and says four years from now there's going to be an Olympic Games and I want to win the gold medal, do whatever you've got to do to get me to the gold medal stand so that I can hear the star-spangled banner. And he, does he, what kind of a coach does he hire? Doesn't he hire the most tyrannical coach that he can find? The most skilled and the one that will drive him the hardest? He, by hiring that man, he is believing by faith that he's got the best method for getting him there. An athlete accepts and commits to that kind of a requirement from a tyrannical coach or personal trainer. And do you know why he does it? Because he sees joy afar off. How many nights when after working possibly a full-time job at a profession, he goes to a track or he goes to some, or a swimming pool and he swims lap after lap after lap after lap, sometimes emptying his stomach into a bucket beside the pool, how, off, how often is he feeling joy? But do you know what he's saying? He's saying that it's a, it's, a, it's a worthwhile exchange for me because the day that I stand on that stand, the day that I'm on the stand and the star-spangled banner's playing and I'm on the top level and the gold medal's hanging around my neck, it'll be worth it all. They do it for a corruptible crown. We should be ready to do it for an incorruptible crown. God said it, I believe it, regardless whether there's feelings or not. But I want to tell you something about the Lord. If you'll obey Him, He will give you His Spirit, and you'll rejoice in the believing and the obeying. He's so kind. But not always. Sometimes He wants to see if you believe by faith when there's no feelings around except a dead Sarah, and you know you're dead. Are you still going to obey? How do you wash the dishes? I thought of entitling this sermon tonight, How Do You Wash the Dishes? When you walk into the kitchen and there's a sink full of dishes, how do you wash them? There's two options. You can go attack those dishes and do them quickly and thoroughly and conscientiously and cheerfully. Or you can go away from that kitchen, turn your back on it, and try to ignore that there's a sink full of dishes there. And all the while, think about it in the back of your mind saying, I hate doing dishes. How'd they dirty so many dishes so quickly? This is ridiculous. Why are there so many dishes? Why doesn't anybody help me? Why am I stuck doing this unseen, unthankful thing called doing dishes? And so you just moan and you groan about it. And it's horrible. And I don't care what you go do, if you've got any conscience at all, even if it's this big, do you know what that little conscience is doing? There's a sink full of dishes back there and you just hate yourself and you hate the dishes, but you don't want to go do them. That's one way of doing it. And do you know what? Then when you go do them, you're despising every dish. You're despising everything about it. But you know what happens to the person that jumps on those dishes and does them right then? And does them thoroughly and conscientiously and cheerfully? How do you feel as you finish the task? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Do you get a sense of joy? Because you, you know that you have done what is right. You know that you have done what God expects. You know that you have done what your parents told you to do. You know what you have done that a wife is supposed to do. And there is joy in the doing. But I'm telling you, when you come in and you've been tired from shopping or you've been at work, and you come around the corner and there's a great big sink of dirty dishes, there is no joy in the matter. Even if you're using the soap called joy. There's no joy. But if you jump into it, there is joy. The joy is in the doing. And it is true of the things God gives us to do. The joy comes in the doing. How do you approach a high dive? You are in a swimming class, or you are out with a bunch of guys, or you're out with a bunch of girls, and there's a high dive. How do you approach the high dive? Have you ever done this? 
You gingerly go up the ladder. You walk all the way out the diving board, and you stand there and you look down. How far does it look when you're at the end of a diving board? About six miles. Even when it's 20 feet, it looks about six miles. You know that from the shore, it looked like just a little drop, maybe two body lengths. But when you're up there looking down, it looks so far away. I'm not playing with you. The more you look, guess what you're going to do? You and shame are going to turn around and walk back down that diving board and go back down those steps. You know what the best way to do? If you know that the water's deep enough and you've seen others go off and come up, run up those steps and run out that thing and go for it. You're doing it by faith. The faith and the fact that you've seen others do it in front of you and they all survived. But if, but if you go up there and you think about it, I don't want to think, I don't want us thinking about diving boards, brethren. I want us thinking about our spouses, our marriage, our children, and living godly lives. If you think about it, you know what? It appears too hard. You just jump off and do it. And the Lord will keep you. Just jump off and do it. And the pleasure and the blessing and the joy comes in the doing. I've done everything I just said, including walking back down that ladder in total shame. Everyone I've ever baptized, I've warned them about feelings. When I baptize you, don't come up out of the water expecting any great feeling. There's only one feeling I can promise you. What is it? Wet. Yes, brother. There's only one feeling in baptism that I can promise you. It's wetness. We're doing it by faith. God has never promised us feelings in baptism. He just said, do it. Be baptized. So God said it. I believe it. That settles it. We get baptized. And if we're looking for feelings, we're looking for the wrong thing. God does not want us getting baptized because of potential feelings. He wants us getting baptized because He said it. How about when you confess your sins? Do you confess your sins and still have guilt feelings? Oh, brethren. See, I wanted to get something where your heads went up and down. And you know what I'm talking about. You confess your sins. And when you finish, finish confessing your sins, you still feel guilty. Do you know what you're lacking? Faith. God said, He is faithful and just. He's faithful. He cannot lie. He's just. The sins have already been paid for. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we'll confess them. You better take 1 John 1, 9 and get your hand. Why do I say that? Lay hold of the promises of God. You have faith inside you. The Word of God is there written plainly. Take 1 John 1, 9, grab it and believe it. And so when you get down and you confess your sins and you get up and you believe, they're forgiven. Don't worry about the feelings. Don't think about the feelings. They mean nothing. God has never told you if you still feel that that they're not confessed, that you need to do it again. He said, believe. You know, we'd be confessing all day long sometimes. Believe. How about when you know, let's not be too hasty. Maybe if I wait. Brother, comfort a brother, warn a brother. Don't go by your feelings. Do you know what the Bible says? It is a choice to have a merry heart. And if you will choose to believe God, obey God, and have a merry heart, the Bible says, Proverbs 15, 15, You can have a continual feast. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Now, he is not just describing something you can't influence or it wouldn't be a proverb. That is wisdom there. Some people go through life that everything's horrible. All the days of the afflicted are evil. Everything's just horrible. But there are others that look at it, God's still in heaven. I've got my health. I've got the Word of God. He saved my soul by Jesus Christ. Everything's fine. And they have a continual feast. Joy is a choice because the Apostle Paul made it a commandment. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. I want you to apply what you're hearing tonight to two things primarily. Your marriage and the godliness I preached about this morning. To be more spiritually minded is by faith. 
I mentioned a number of things that we all ought to be doing. You're not going to feel like doing them tomorrow. You're not going to feel like doing them on Thursday evening. So do them anyway, by faith. God said to do it. We want to be spiritually minded. Do it. Obey God. Believe God. And He'll give you the blessing of joy in the obedience. You're in a marriage where there isn't a whole lot of feeling left? God has already told you how you're to treat your spouse. Believe God, obey God, and He will give you feelings. We have a reunited marriage. We have a 49-year-old marriage, and we have marriages in between. And I want you to think about two things tonight, faith over feelings. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. God has told a woman how to treat her husband. God has told a husband how to treat his wife. If you will believe God and do it, the feelings will come in the doing. If you wait until the feelings drive you to do it towards your spouse, it will never happen. The bitterness will continue to grow and mount until it is huge and insurmountable. It's a choice. The Bible says that we as Christians, as employees, as servants, are to endure grief wrongfully. Does that sound like a pleasant feeling? You're on the job and you've got some monster that you're working for. You're a wife and you're married to a monster. You're a husband and you chose a monster. The odious woman. What do we all do in those cases? We're enduring grief wrongfully. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? But are we supposed to do it? It's a commandment. If we believe God and go ahead and do it, He says that is something that's praiseworthy. And if you do something that God says is praiseworthy, is He going to reward you? Yes, because Hebrews tells us that faith believes that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And if you cheerfully submit to someone who's causing you to suffer wrongfully, you are going to be rewarded. But if you're working for, if you're working for an obnoxious employer, is it easy? Do the feelings drive you? It is by faith. And do you know what God calls it in 1 Peter 2, 18-20? Conscience toward God. If you have a conscience toward God, that is faith. Out of a conscience toward God, you're going to obey that employer because you're going to please the Lord. The Lord will bless you at that place of employment. I think Joseph's a pretty good example that you can find in the book of Genesis. Jesus once told Peter, come to me. Peter saw Jesus walking on the water and he said, Lord, bid me come to you. Jesus said, come. Peter jumped over the side of that boat and headed for Jesus walking on the water. He was going to be a great one of faith. But what happened? He took his eyes off the one that had said come. He lost his faith by looking around. It's deep. There's waves. The wind's blowing. And all of a sudden he began to sink. He could have made it. He could have walked on water. Jesus had to reach out and save him. And what did he say to him? That he was of little faith. Because he didn't have great faith. Great faith would have just gone out there and said, This is wonderful. My Lord's here. He's told me to come to Him. And do you know what? In our our relationships like marriage, where we're so discouraged by years of pain, so discouraged by years of maybe not getting the response out of the partner, out of our spouse that we wish we would have received, we jump out in the water anyway and we do what the Bible says. We operate by faith and we go to Christ. We jump off the high dive. Because we're trusting by faith that the Lord will catch us. And the Lord will bless. There is a reward in obeying. But if you hold back to protect yourself, you are lost. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. If you walk back down that high dive, if you do not put into your marriage what you should be, because you're afraid of your investment being rejected and you being hurt, you will not be rewarded by God. And you are going to suffer for it. Because Jesus said, if you'll lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. If you'll try to save your life and protect yourself, you're going to lose it. Have you ever tried to do something for someone that you didn't feel that great about? But when you went and did something for them, you felt a whole lot better about them after you did something for them? Isn't that wonderful? That's like the dirty dishes. It's like the dirty dishes. Give a gift to somebody that you don't like. After you've given the gift, you'll feel so much better. That's the Lord rewarding obedience. 
It's more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus taught us. But you sure don't feel that way before you do the giving. You know, we're all selfish. We'd rather receive than to give. But if we'll go ahead and believe that Jesus Christ said that, it must be true, that settles it, I'm going to go ahead and give, you find out that giving is better than receiving. In your marriage, God doesn't really care what kind of a result you get from the other party. God doesn't really care what's returned to you from your spouse. What God cares about is you're going to obey Him. He doesn't want you obeying Him. Husbands, love your wives. Or wives, reverence your husbands for what you're going to get. He wants you doing that for what He's going to give you later. And because He said to do it. And if you'll do it in faith, for those reasons, He will bless your marriage. Did you know that contentment is learned conduct? Contentment isn't something you wait till you feel it. Do you know that if you keep working 60 to 80 hours a week until you make enough money to where you're content, how long will you work? Till you drop of a stroke. Contentment is learned at any level of income. Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Jesus said in Hebrews 13, 5 through Paul, because I've said to you, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, you ought to be consent, content with whatever you have. Contentment is learned. It's a choice by faith. And yet we think contentment is something that we will get when we get to a certain level. But you know what? He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Contentment never gets there. And you know what the wise man said that was? It's sick. It's evil. It's vanity and it's vexation of spirit. Contentment is learned. Brethren, the Bible tells us to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. How do you do that? A temptation? That's trouble, affliction, pain, and sorrow. How do you count it all joy? By faith. Because God said in that very sentence that through that He's going to make you perfect. And so God said it, I believe it. That settles it. I'm going to conclude now by reminding you of what I taught you this morning. Whether it is being spiritually minded and living godly lives and exercising yourself unto godliness or making your marriage what it should be, it comes down to doing the first works. It's a matter of faith. When we hear the words first love, because of our society and the way we've been brainwashed, we think that first love is some unique thing that just happens. First love is not unique, nor does it just happen. First love can happen again. You can make it happen by doing the first works. But there was an order there. Remember, repent, and do the first works. And that is all of faith. Because brethren, when you're trying to get first love back for the Lord, or first love back for your spouse, that means you don't have it. And when you don't have it, and you're looking at getting it, it seems so far away and so difficult. But all it is, is there for the taking in remembering, repenting, and doing the first works. I pray that this week, in your marriages and in your exercising yourself in a godliness, you'll do the first works. And this will be a spiritually minded church. So that when the Lord does bring us some visitors, they won't be so discouraged like the reports I've heard of being on fire for the Lord because God came down and filled them with joy of the Holy Ghost and love for a, whole, a pure religion. And then they run into carnal Christians and become discouraged. I want them coming in here and seeing a group of people like they've never seen anywhere on earth. I mean, the Lord bless us to be that, not just for them, but primarily for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our head and who saved us for that.